scriptures. We will eventually get to Psalm 56, but I would like to read a bit earlier in the Psalms, beginning on page 451 with Psalm 10. I want to, we're going to talk about psalms of, what are called the psalms of lamentation this morning, as we try to combine our dealing with suffering and thanksgiving. We are in a period of profound suffering in our church in many ways. Most recently, our brother's injury Dustin Salter. Uh, We've had other devastating news and a death in John Smith. And yet, it's Thanksgiving. So how do we bring those together? How do we think of suffering and Thanksgiving and, and, and put them in the same boat, so to speak? It's interesting that the lamentation, the, the psalm of personal lamentation is by far the most common psalm of all the types. Close to 50 psalms fall into this category. It's amazing that that kind of emphasis is given to expressing pain before God. And here in in, in chapter 10, we have one of the questions that is asked, and we won't read all of this, Psalm, but just to give you a feel for the cry of the psalmist. Chapter 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself and renounces the Lord? In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight as for all his foes. He puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And he goes on crying out in verse 12 that the Lord would arise asking again. Why? Verse 13. But it begins. Why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Another question found on page 453, how long, O Lord, Psalm 13, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So, the why, the how long. And then the text that we have in the bulletin 
listed him, uh, Psalm 56 on page 476. Psalm 56. can get a feel the different ways that the psalmists express themselves from these psalms. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me all day long. An attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. For their crime, will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O God. You have kept count of my tossings or wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise. In the Lord whose word I praise. In God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. After the service last Sunday, uh, Janet Welch, who's not able to be with us today, said, almost in the middle of your sermon, I stood up to read Psalm 56. She said, because it's been the most precious psalm for me in the loss of my husband, because it speaks of such pain, and yet I will render thank offerings to you. Let us pray. O Lord, enable us to enter into the richness of your people's lamentation. As we are honest about what goes on in our hearts, honest about the pain and suffering and the devastations that we experience, and Lord, entirely hopeful for what you are doing in the midst of us and what you will do in that final day. Bless us, Lord, that we will be real believers real in facing the harsh realities of this cursed world and real as we embrace the glorious realities of the world to come and the kingdom that even now is ours in Christ Jesus. Bless us to that end, we pray. Amen. Now, the fact that Lamentations play such a huge role in this worship book. This is the hymn book of God's people. And we could say, of course, that it's written by men who themselves are in various circumstances and expressing themselves either individually or corporately 
in their worship of God. We could say, though, in the final analysis, this hymn book was written by God. As the scriptures say, all scripture is God breathed. Even these most intimate expressions of godly men are ultimately from the hand of God. So God has put before us this emphasis on lamentation. What do we make of that? What do we make of this this one third of the worship of, of the Psalms being Psalms of lamentation? Well, first of all, it underscores the reality of suffering and the reality of God's sovereignty in it. The reality of suffering and yet the reality of God's sovereignty in suffering. It tells us that there is a lot wrong with this life. Much pain, much loss, much suffering. There's no things are nowhere close to being right. And therefore, lamentation is regularly appropriate for the people of God. Lamentation is called for. It is the regular cry of the godly because of the awful reality in which we live. You get a feel here in Psalm 56 for the severity of it as he uses the, the word trample twice in verse 1 and 2. I'm just literally trampled under. Possibly these beginning statements, it says, written of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. That's possibly the setting. We, we cannot be sure. That's not the word of God itself. But it could be the fact that it was occurred when David was being seized. But nonetheless, it is an expression for anyone in any kind of situation of devastation. And he's being trampled, attacked, trampled, uh, accosted. Uh, then he, he speaks of how they injure me, verse 5, and all their thoughts are against me. There's a ruining of my life, my future, my well-being. There's a constancy. All day long this goes on. There are many of them, verse 2. All their thoughts. You, you get the superlative of pain here. As he's pouring out in detail to God his pain. And that is an example for us. Tell him what is happening in your life. Tell him how you feel about it. Tell him how it hurts. Tell him how devastating it is. What it felt like when that person said that. How you were totally shocked when this you heard the news. Pour your heart out. You get that feel. He's telling him everything. In detail of what he is suffering. And you see in these lamentations as they ask the question why or they ask the question how long. It's directed straight to God. It's not just saying this happened and that happened. They're addressing God directly. It's a complaint straight to him. And it shows the reality of this relationship, the intimacy of this relationship. As Westerman writes, such accusations are a sign that those who spoke them took their God seriously. The questions are directed 
to the very God that they see is responsible. Lord, all this is happening to me. How long will you let this happen to me? Why is this happening, O God? You see, it acknowledges his sovereignty. It's not a statement of unbelief. Oh, that God is not involved in this world and I doubt your existence and I doubt your involvement. No, I know your existence. I know your involvement. I know your sovereignty. And that's what drives me crazy, God. I can't make sense of it. You see, it's a sign of the faith they have. It's an acknowledgement of his sovereignty and his assumed goodness and faithfulness. And we're saying this doesn't square. I don't understand. I can't connect the dots and I can't hold out any longer. I'm going under. Save me. How long? It's shockingly honest. Shockingly honest in its approach to God. That he's a real God, he's really involved, and I can't make sense of this. You see, this is the true reality of suffering. I said it underscores the reality of suffering that we are dealing with God himself in our suffering. We can't make heads nor tails of it. We're confused and devastated when suffering takes us out at the knees. It comes at us from an unforeseen direction. We're ambushed, engulfed, waylaid. It hits us like a car bomb in Baghdad and we're just pieces everywhere. And we can't square his goodness with it. We can't see his wisdom in it. It just seems insane. That's not foreign to the Psalms. You find it in the Psalms over and over again. The struggle to grapple with this God. Westerman again says, This petition shows, this lamentation, that human beings cannot always stand uniformly near to God. They experience that God is remote And their calls to God mean that they want to come near to God again. The point is we can lose our grasp of him. The devastation can take over our life and our hearts. It, It can blind us to God instead of leading us to God. And you can be sure that when the train of affliction pulls into your life, that the spiritual forces of darkness are holed up in a boxcar and they slip out into the dark to see what they can Make of this situation. The war of belief and unbelief is on. And so our basic cry is really for God himself. It's to have him and embrace him in the midst of this. Also, for the believer, it's to please him and manifest him, even imitate our Lord Jesus in the midst of our pain. You see, the Israelites in the wilderness cried out why, but they were expressing their distaste for God. They didn't want to be in the wilderness to have God. They wanted to leave God and go back to the pleasures of relative pleasures, their slavery. But they had good food, at least, (laughs) of Egypt. But we are crying out for more of God. We want him. And when he doesn't seem like 
he's supposed to be, it can plunge us into confusion and darkness, even despair. Where is he? Why is he far away? Why are we forsaken? Why do we seem forgotten? Why does justice seem to be cast down? So, the lamentations underscore the reality of suffering. And they don't shrink back from it. In fact, I would dare say that the Psalms tend to drive us into it, tend to pull us and say, are you being honest with God about how you feel? Or are you just playing like it doesn't matter? Are you so distant from God that when these things happen, you're just dully going through them in your life? And that's the second point that these, these underscore the reality of this suffering and the reality of God's sovereignty in it and grappling with that. But it also shows that the, the godly must never be dulled to the pain and suffering of this world. We must never be comfortable with it or resigned to it. The Psalms of lamentation are emphatically against a stoic bearing of the pain of this world and hardening ourselves against it, developing calluses so we feel nothing. That's not the feel of the Psalms. It's also against redefining things like Helen Kubler-Ross's works years ago, and when the, the ones that I read in which she would try to redefine death as just a natural thing. It's a peaceful thing that we should all embrace and not get uptight about. Instead of seeing that death and everything connected with it is repulsive and dreadful in the kingdom of God. We lament, we cry out, we hate everything that has to do with the curse of this world. And these lamentations tell us that it is right and good to express this pain. It is not a humble thing just to take it and get, quote, used to it. It's a godly thing to cry out in our pain to God. To notice our pain and hate it and pour out our hearts and seek not to be overcome by that, but to be molded through God's grace to be more like Christ in it. God must want this honesty. He must want our tears. He actually coaxes us this way in the Psalms of Lamentation. He even sets the example. You might say the Lord Jesus blazes a path. Some of the most dramatic and memorable, memorable words ever spoken by our Savior were quoted from the opening lines of a Psalm of Lament. Why? Why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting a psalm of lament. And so our Lord Jesus forever made this, made holy this ground of lamentation. He fell under the appalling agony of sin's curse and he cried out, why? And you think about this. He knew why he's the son of God. He knew from one perspective what was happening. He knew the doctrine of the presence of God. He knew the promises of God. He knew what redemption was being accomplished. But he was in agony and as a human being cast into utter pain and confusion. And he cried out, why? Why? 
So you see, our Lord enters into this lamentation in the midst of the very pivot of history, the cross itself. Redemption is wrought in the midst of a cry of lamentation. And you know that that cry bursts forth from a perfect heart. The cry of lamentation from Christ formed a part of the perfect sacrifice that pleased the Father on the cross. It was a part of the sweet aroma of the faultless obedience of Christ. So I suppose that we could say in a certain sense there's the duty, isn't there? The duty of holy and humble and faithful crying out to God. Of being so aware of sin and its devastation in our lives and other people's lives that we will never stop crying out until it's removed. That's a far cry of people being so dulled by the pleasures of this world. That they hope Jesus stays a while and doesn't come. But thirdly, the godly must never be dulled, of course, to the pain and suffering of this world. But they must never be dulled to the hope that they have in God. The psalmist says here in Psalm 56, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I love that. When this happens, this happens. (laughs) When I'm fearful, when I'm devastated, when I have my knees cut out from under me, when I'm under extreme stress or any kind of stress, when anything happens to me, I trust in you. I trust in you. May that be our cry. Just just like the, the child that I've seen this so many times with my children you know, you'd be somewhere, there's a dog that comes through the fence, and where's the child? You know, just clinging to your leg, crawling up. You don't know that it, the child, two-year-old, can climb up a body, but it can. You know, to get up here safe in your arms. And that should be you and me. Clinging to that leg of the father, crawling up into his arms for safety. When we are devastated, when we are hurt, when we are stressed, when... When we sense our own hardness of heart, when we sense the, the, the temptations of sin, always, always we're saying, I trust in you, I trust in you. It's the, it's the sound of those who know that they're helpless. And that's a good thing. We're so self-righteous. We're so self-sufficient. We're so hardened, calloused, instead of tender and trusting and when he says, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, that's, that's a parallel statement. To praise his word is to trust his word. You see, it honors his promise when we trust him. It honors his integrity and his faithfulness. The faithfulness of all the words that he has put before us, all of his promises, when I trust him. And he repeats this for emphasis, verse 10. God whose word I praise and the Lord whose word I praise. Three times that phrase. 
praise His Word, honor His Word by trusting in Him. His promises just collect and gather around us like mountains. He wants us to constantly be buoyed up and and strengthened by promise. That's why 2 Peter says, we lay hold of the divine nature through the promise. That's the only way you can get a hold of God is through His great and glorious promises. That's how you draw Him near to yourself, is this glorious promise. And notice this little contrast. When He says in verse 6, concerning the wicked, they stir up strife. Notice, they lurk, they watch my steps, as they have waited for my life. So you get the idea of assassins. Keeping an eye out so that they can attack at any point. Watching for how they can destroy me. Lurking. Planning. Waiting to, this, to, to tear my life to pieces. But there's someone else watching. And that's the contrast in verse 8. But you have kept count of my wanderings. My tears are in your bottle. You see, the, the sense is... Every tear shed by us is caught in his bottle and he holds every single tear you've ever cried in your life. He has it still to this day. And he can recall every moment of your pain and your agony and your pressure and your being embarrassed or insecure or hurt or devastated, abused. Every single moment of your life of horror or fear He remembers it intimately. It's all in his bottle. Then he, to underscore it, to say it again, he says, are they not in your book? Just carefully kept, like God is the most careful CPA you've ever seen. Every single detail. But these aren't just figures and numbers. These are the accountings of the pain of his people. And he's kept count of every bit of it. And you see, that trumps the wicked that are out who keep their eye on you to destroy you. Well, too bad. There's somebody else who has his eye on you to protect you and love you and tenderly bring you to his final salvation. So we must never be dull to the great hope that we have in God who is with us. And the little phrase in verse 9 it's also in verse 4 where he says, What can flesh do to me? And that's to say flesh is nothing compared to God. And he says in verse 11, What can man do for me? Same thing. You see, it's repeated for emphasis. And we're, we think of, of uh, Romans 8 where he says, If God is for us, who can be against us? And there's that little phrase. It seems like Paul had to have had Psalm 56 in his head a little bit when he was writing Romans 8. This I know, that God is for me. In the, in the Hebrew, it just says, Elohim li, God for me. God for me. Everything that God is, is devoted for my, to my good. That's a summary of the whole covenant, of God's whole bond and commitment to do us good. And so, the Psalms of Lamentation, the reason there are so many of them, I believe, 
It's, it's God's means to protest constantly against the evil and suffering of this world to point us to the hope of the world to come. To point us to the hope of God's final deliverance. And what's interesting is in the Psalms, as many writers on the Psalms have pointed out, many times the turnaround is so dramatic in the Psalms, they think it's not just a a change of mood that a person has prayed and come out with a new mood. But the psalm has as a background the very deliverance of God. And and the psalm recounts, really, this was the situation I was in, but you brought me deliverance. Well, what's interesting for you and for me is that our final deliverance is yet to come. And we may have a lot of deliverances, and we do have multiple deliverances in this life. But our final deliverance in Christ is yet to come. And yet that deliverance breaks into this world and supports and energizes and strengthens us. And colors everything else in our life. And part of our lamentation is to constantly pronounce, in a sense, God's judgment and God's opinion against the evil and pain of this world, looking more and more to the hope that he will bring in Christ Jesus. It's to show that though God allows suffering for his purposes and works all things out for good, including suffering, He hates suffering itself. He protests loudly and constantly against it through the Psalms and will one day remove it completely from the earth when he creates shalom. And that's why the cross is God's infinite and almighty protest against sin and suffering. That is his means by which through becoming flesh and suffering for sin, he says, no, it will not be. It will not continue. I declare war on sin and its consequences. I rise to enter into the fray against it. Sin will not be master over you. You will soon crush Satan under your feet. Welcome to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Peace be to all who trust in Christ Jesus. And in C.S. Lewis' words, Aslan is on the move. (laughs) He fixes our eyes on the final day of deliverance. And so we live in this tension of the present suffering in which we become even more sensitive to the, the sin and suffering of this world and yet more sensitive to the glory of the life to come waiting eagerly for this Savior who is coming for us. So we are banking on the new creation in Christ Jesus. And the amazing thing is that the new creation has already begun. It is already in our midst. We are already a part of it. As Paul says in Colossians 1, we've already been delivered from the domain or authority of darkness and we've been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, There has been a change of venue for the people of God. We put in for a transfer and boy, did we get one. The kingdom is here and now. And we are living out our change. We are living out the fact that all things are new for us, even though we're in the midst of a broken world. Paul can say the old has passed away. We are new creation and there's a new self. And we're able to live in hope 
even if the promise is yet ahead of us, even as the patriarchs did. It said that Abraham himself never saw the land, but he was looking for a city made without hands. And so, whatever temporal deliverances we have or don't have, we will have that final deliverance that will be glorious and amazing. So that we are being sustained by this hope of final deliverance. And it brings resilience and joy into our present circumstances of suffering, even though there's no physical deliverance sometimes. We sing our songs of deliverance ahead of time. So that songs of deliverance can mark our days and sweeten our days and give us strength for our days even before the final actual day of deliverance. That day embraces us even now and can sweeten every day so that we live in anticipation. You could say that, let's put it this way, that Christ's mighty foot is already into the door of history and, and Satan can't shut the door. The whole weight of the kingdom of Christ is pressing in on the door and there's no stopping it. And the rest of that kingdom, the full flowering of that kingdom will barge into the house like a SWAT team in that final day. And those who've been held hostage to the pain and curse of this world who believe in Christ will be freed and they will be safe forever. And the enemy will perish. He will be executed. He will never be back. He will rise no more. So we must never be dull to the hope of the world to come. And then I think we tend to be dull to both. We tend to harden ourselves and dull ourselves to the pain and suffering and sin of this world and to the same, to the glory to come. And we're to be these wild, passionate creatures that in one sense hurt more than anybody else in the world because we love more fiercely than anybody else in the world. We hate sin and pain more than anybody else in the world. And yet we embrace the glory to come in a way that nobody can even understand. Why a man such as Dustin, who influenced hundreds of students for Christ, and has the prospect of thousands more, why should he be struck down when others doing immense evil in the world are still fine? Why should that be? We can't imagine the complex prescriptions of God in our lives and other people's lives. What kind of pain and loss and the word and worship and interaction with other believers under what circumstances. Who, who can tell what God is doing in thousands of people's lives? We don't know. We can't understand his working. He may be doing something 30 years from now. Through a circumstance that we can't understand. In this, he teaches us that we're not protected from the regular devastations of life. That we are struck down by disease and other things. Sometimes we're delivered, sometimes we're not. But we manifest Christ in the midst of what all people go through in this world. You see, that's the key. We don't live in this bubble. We live right in the midst of the pain of everybody else in the world, but we live differently. We manifest Christ in it. 
And God means to show that right where we live. It also shows that you can't do a deal with God so that you give your life to God and everything's going to be perfect after that. And if that's the kind of deal you want with Jesus, he didn't, he didn't make deals like that. If you want him, he'll give you him. If you want more and more of Christ, and you want to have him unveil his beauty and love to you increasingly for the rest of your life, you want to be comforted by him and built up in him, he will give himself to you in every way possible. But who knows how he may do it. And it teaches us that we can never be dependent on even the most fruitful of his servants. We might be separated from everybody, from our closest friends, but we'll never be separated from the love of Christ. Would you turn with me in the bulletin? These two questions were taped. And many of you have already seen them. These two questions from the Heidelberg were taped in Dustin's Bible. And you know that he spoke on the subject of providence the Sunday before the accident. I will read the question. Would you please read the answer with me? What do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which He upholds as with His hand heaven and earth and all creatures and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, Fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but from his fatherly hand. How does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well. And for the future, we can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that nothing will separate us from his love. All creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Amen. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, if there is anyone here that has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, the one who suffered for sinners, the one who stood in the place and bore the judgment of God so that any one of us might receive complete forgiveness And permanent forgiveness and a permanent relationship with Jesus Christ forever. Oh, Lord, if there is anyone holding back up to this point, unwilling to say, Lord Jesus, I entrust the whole of my life. I trust you to take away my sin. I trust you to be my Lord and King forever. Oh, Lord.
Would you work in that person's heart even now that he or she might even this day trust you and embrace you? We pray, O Lord God, that you would move any who have been dependent on self, who perhaps have hardened themselves against all that is going on in life, They might unburden their hearts to Jesus Christ. And for those of us, Lord, who are believers, enable us to be real and honest before you, to run the risk of being open to the devastation of loving each other dearly and being open to loss, to being vulnerable to love one another, Lord, to do away with self-protection and self-preservation, to lose ourselves in the mighty hands of God, in the way of love, even as Christ did for us. Bless us, Lord, that we may know the joy of that love for the one who, for the joy set before him, even cried out, why? Oh, my God, why have you forsaken me? Lord, may we thus be that honest with our God and give ourselves up to him in in reality, in faith, in hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.